We're going to come to a time now we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you turn to the book of Ephesians, continuing in our study through the book of Ephesians, and we've made it all the way through chapter 1. We did it. And now we're into chapter 2. So uh, if you find Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, it is on page uh, 827 if you're using a Brown Pew Bible. Stand with me together. And we will read our passage this morning, the first seven verses. Paul writes this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live or walk when you followed in the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath. But, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's God's word. You may be seated. Allow me to quickly just pray for us once more, ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dig in here. Spirit of God, we ask now that you would open our, our hearts and our ears, our minds to hear what it is that you want to say to us this morning through your word. God, I just pray against any barrier, any hindrance this morning to your word. Would you demolish these strongholds? Would you demolish these masks, demolish barriers, whatever it is that would get in the way of your word? Because you who are, we learned last week, who have incomparably great power, you easily can overcome these things. And I ask that you would do it this morning by your spirit. You say in your word, when you send out your word, it does not return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. There was a uh, hilarious comedy sketch that I stumbled across a number of years ago that takes place in a, a doctor's office. So uh, the doctor, he comes into his office with this kind of noticeably concerned look on his face. He sits down on a stool across from a woman who is seated on the examining table. And looking from the chart in his hand up to the woman, he says, Well, your uh, test results have come back. And I'm sorry to say it's, it's not the news that we were hoping for. May I be really honest with you? To which the woman, without missing a beat, looks back at him and says, Hmm, no. Leaving the doctor kind of sitting there awkwardly, and then all he can do is respond by saying, Oh, okay then, well, well then, then everything is fine, and uh, you're not going to die. Uh, and then the scene just fades out as the woman happily thanks the doctor and leaves the office. Uh, I, I find that kind of stuff hilarious. Um, 
Of course, the reason we find that so laughable is because, of course, simply being unwilling to hear or look at difficult news doesn't make it untrue. Uh, like, this, for the same reason that your three-year-old closing their eyes as you're playing hide-and-seek with them, thinking that they're hidden, doesn't work, uh, just, you know, plugging your ears and saying, la-la-la-la-la, as the doctor says the word cancer, doesn't make you not have it. Uh, this is, we, we know this, and yet the more we think about it, the more you understand that we, we need to hear these things, and think about this, the, the more serious, the more uh, serious the, the illness or the danger is, the more it makes acknowledging the truth all the more urgent, because every minute, every day that goes by where you remain unwilling to hear or look at what's trying to be shown to you, it makes any prospect of effective treatment or of rescue, all the more unlikely. And I mention all that as we continue in our teaching series through the book of Ephesians this morning, because despite how laughable that woman's response to her doctor is, for many people, their response to this passage here, particularly the first three verses, is almost exactly the same as that woman to her doctor in the sketch. That is, what I mean is, as the Word of God seeks to reveal the true nature of every human heart, apart from the saving work of Jesus, our response, without missing a beat, either, is also, "Mm, no thanks, and just simply walk out of the room, as though, just imagining by simply ignoring the diagnosis, we've somehow invalidated it or, or caused it to become untrue. But maybe you noticed already what's entirely unique about this diagnosis that God is seeking to reveal to us here in particular is that it's not warning us of impending death. You notice that he's not, he's not giving them a terminal diagnosis here and saying, you're going to die. According to the Bible, these people here, all of us, already are dead. We already are dead, spiritually speaking, which I'm sure you can imagine uh, has some pretty important and powerful implications as it relates to our salvation, as it relates to the miraculous nature of it, as well as our ability to bring it about by our own will and desire, if we already are dead. And yet if the Bible is right, and the matter has already been decided, I think the question could legitimately be asked, well, then why bring it up at all? Like, like, are you just being, it could almost seem like it's even being cruel to, to bring up such a condition when there's nothing that can be done about it. It's already done. You're, you're, you're dead. Like, why, why even bother bringing it up if there's nothing that can be done about it? Well, of course, if you keep reading past verse 3, what you see is that's not the case at all. Something can be done about it and something has been done about it in an act of unparalleled, incomparable grace towards us in Jesus. And considering that reality, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that in the same way we divide history today between B.C. and A.D., before Christ, the year of our Lord, we, we divide history that way. In the same way we do that, the only reason Paul paints such a bleak picture of our situation here in these first three verses is to set up the comparison of our lives before Christ so that the riches of God's grace in saving us that follow might be seen as incomparably rich as they truly are. 
We get a sense of just how incomparably rich it is when we see the diagnosis before Christ. And so in order to help us see and grasp with Paul the true riches of God's grace in granting us new life as we move from before Christ to in Christ, I want to look at our passage here this morning in just two ways. I want to talk about facing a grave diagnosis and then being raised to new life in Christ. Just these two things this morning. Facing a grave diagnosis, being raised to new life in Christ. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage there? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me as we dive into this incomparable look at the riches of God's grace to us in Jesus. Okay, so let's look first of all at facing a grave diagnosis. Facing a grave diagnosis. Now, while I've known plenty of people who have... I personally have never sat in a doctor's office and had a doctor give me or give someone that I love a terminal diagnosis. I've never been in that situation before yet. But from everything that I've heard from friends and loved ones that I've talked to who have been there, as well as things that I've read, people say again and again, it's an experience that you just you can't prepare yourself for. People have described literally the feeling as though the ground has dropped out from under their feet and they're just falling, and they don't know when they're going to hit bottom. Which, of course, as we looked at last week, is just another one of like a thousand reasons why we fear death so much, and we want to just avoid thinking or looking at it at all costs. But if you're willing, if you'd be willing with me to look at this diagnosis that Paul gives together, because, as he pretty clearly said, it's, it's all of our diagnosis. It's mine as well as yours. So if we can look at our diagnosis together for just a minute and dig into it, I think we're going to see some important implications about what he's written. So let's read through it together. Let's look at it. Let's be brave. And then we'll just talk about it for a minute. Look what Paul says. Uh, verse 1, chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed in the ways of this world. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, just to clarify, first of all, back in verse 1 there, when Paul says, you, at the beginning of verse 1, again, he's referring specifically to these Gentile Christians that he's writing to in Ephesus. He's saying, this was true of you, but one of the things that, lest we think that Paul is being derogatory, he's just like, oh yeah, you Gentiles, you guys are a bunch of wicked sinners. Well, you notice that very quickly, right at the beginning of verse 3, he goes on and includes all of them. He includes his Jewish brothers and sisters. He says, all of us also at one time lived among them, these disobedient ones. At one time we all lived among them. So he's including everyone in the diagnosis. Secondly, Although it seems like, I don't know, maybe Paul could use to like stand and take some online courses in bedside manner for the way he's delivering this diagnosis. I mean, it seems pretty harsh the way he's just like, and you're dead. Um, at the same time, we need to remember that in all through chapter one, he's actually been including a great deal of preparation for this diagnosis, presenting these ideas already ahead of time. For Think about it. Why speak of redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our sins, if our transgressions and sins weren't something that were keeping us separated from God? 
Why, uh, why talk about our adoption and choosing in Christ if there wasn't a time when we were separated from relationship with him? And in fact, why talk about God's great vision of, of uniting all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ, even under one head in Christ, if we aren't separated? If, if they're already together, why bother talking about God uniting those things in Christ? Which is just to say, he's been preparing them already up until this time. It's not dropping this diagnosis out of the sky like a, drum, like a dump truck or something. He, he really is preparing them, and now he brings them to the final, this is the diagnosis. But then some would likely push back and say, okay, well, maybe, yeah, maybe he's been presenting the ideas of separation from God up until now, but he hasn't said anything close to this. He hasn't said anything like, oh, and by the way, you're also dead. So clearly this is different. But what that fails to realize, of course, is that for Paul and really all the biblical writers, to be separated from a life-giving relationship with God is to be dead, spiritually speaking. To be separated from God, that, that is to be dead. That's what Paul's talking about. Just consider, for one example, for instance, what God says to Adam in the Garden of Eden. When he's warning him about not eating from the forbidden fruit, Genesis 2.17, God says, For on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But the point is that God's definition of death has to be at least greater than physical death alone. He must be talking about at least something greater than that because when Adam and Eve do eat the fruit anyways, they don't drop dead on the spot. This is not Snow White. You know, take the bite of the apple. Oh, that doesn't happen. So clearly there's, there's something more going on than what Scott's saying. You will surely die. Now what does happen? Immediately what happens? They are exited out of the garden. They're taken out of the presence of God. That does happen right away, which leads to them eventually after many years. They, they physically die as well. So all of this to say at least from a biblical perspective, death, it's, it's not, the primary definition is not physical death. But only, the Bible seems to speak of death as more as a result of our spiritual death, which is separation from God because of our sin. Which I think is exactly what Paul is trying to emphasize here when, when he specifically defines what he means by death there in verse 1. You notice there, he doesn't say, as for you, you were dead. No, he qualifies it. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live or walk. So he qualifies what he means by this so we know he's saying spiritually dead. And as you keep reading verses 2 and 3, what you see is that Paul lists three specific sources or three specific places that we were living or walking in that kept us in that spiritual state of death. He lists three things. So there is the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which all the commentators I read agree is very likely pointing to or referring to Satan. And then finally, the cravings of our sinful nature, what the Bible calls the flesh, which altogether we could summarize just kind of broadly as outside cultural peer influence, outside spiritual influence, and then finally, internal influence of our inward curved nature. All these things working together and individually to keep us in a place of spiritual death. Let's just consider each one of them briefly and how they work individually and collectively to keep us in this place. Think of the second one, for instance, that second influence when it comes to spiritual, demonic 
influence. We can pretty, pretty easily see how that would be something that would work against God's will, that would want to keep us in a place of being separated from Him and moving away from God. So that, that influence, that one's pretty easy for us. We could all likely say, yeah, okay, I could see how Satan and his demons would work against us. And I think, sadly, that is actually an area kind of historically in the church that we've tended to maybe point to a little too quickly. When it comes to, we, we failed to obey God. So, you know, since Eve in the Garden of Eden, I think we've all been a bit too quick to explain away our re- moral responsibility by saying the devil made me do it. Uh, but it is included. It is included as part of one of the reasons that keeps us in this place. Secondly, when it comes to cultural or peer influence, what Paul refers to as the ways of this world, it's a little bit more subjective. But I think we could all still likely point to outside influences that encourage, that, that tempt us away from the narrow path. So that tempt us to want to move away from following God and continue in our separation from Him, which is spiritual death. So all kinds of culture, peer influences, whether that's maybe the withering logic of the new atheist to maybe just a hot boyfriend or girlfriend alongside the absence of accountability and boundaries. All kinds of things that could very easily keep us moving away from following God in a way of separation from him. What's interesting to note there is how willingly we still tolerate and accommodate for those outside influences that we say are so harmful to our walk with God. Somehow we still tend to make quite a few accommodations for those things anyway. But I think when it comes to our sinful nature or what the Bible refers to as the flesh, we find it hardest of all to identify those areas that we're walking in that are leading us to death rather than life. And then even when we do identify them, we, ha- we find it very hard to seriously deal with them. And the reason is because, for just for one simple fact, our hearts are deceptive. They, they, they trick us all the time. We're very good at justifying our actions. And then along with that, as the great reformer Martin Luther once said, our hearts, our inward curved nature, our hearts, it's, they're like idol factories. Have you heard this quote from Luther? He described our hearts as like idol factories, meaning we take the good things that God gave us for our pleasure, for our enjoyment, for human flourishing. We take those good things and then turn them into gods that we worship and serve instead of God. We just grab the thing and then just start using it in in a way that was not intended. We worship this. The the language Paul uses, of course, in Romans 1 is this. We worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. And sure, yeah, many many times when these idols develop into more noticeable forms, it's easy to point at if someone develops substance abuse, some kind of addiction, it's easy to point at that and go, yeah, I can see that that's happening. But it's, it's way more subtle than that sometimes. Think about this. Think about somebody who, who wants to, they're trying to derive their meaning and purpose from being kind, from living in a morally upright way so that they can feel superior to other people who don't. What do you say to that person? You're, you're, you're sinning because you're being so nice? Like, and yet, it's the exact same thing. We're using this good thing in order to now put myself above you to feel better than you. And it's actually the exact same thing. Keller uh, writes in his work on this passage, he says, Whether it's through your indecency or your decency, you're doing everything you can to be your own Savior and avoid making Jesus alone the Lord and Savior of your life. Taking God's good things, using them either in noticeable or very subtle ways, to be the savior of our own life. 
That is separation from God, seeking any other Savior than Jesus himself. But whether it's one of these things or all of these things working collectively together, whatever it is, the point in the end is that they still result in death. They still result in separation from God. But follow me, listen, even more than that, Follow Paul's logic and you'll see clearly at the end of verse 3, our spiritual death is not just a static state. It's not that you just continue in this spiritual death and isn't that we don't get to enjoy life as much. No, he says there's actually a trajectory of this that's leading in the end to a much more serious consequence. And that is the wrath of God. Notice at the end of verse 3, he says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Not wrath against people, but wrath against sin, of which we are all covered and infected with. So you see, this is why it's so critical that we don't look away from this diagnosis. To see this grave diagnosis that Paul's giving us here actually as a loving revelation. The same way that a doctor trying to reveal to you a a, a cancer diagnosis, somebody trying to say, uh, the the bridge is is out, don't drive down that road, you're going to die. Like Those are loving revelations, right? They're not seeking to be mean to you. They're telling you what's hard for your good. So as difficult and distasteful as it can sound, we need to be willing to really Look at this and to not look away or try to ignore it. Because yes, although he's speaking metaphorically of, of our spiritual state, just consider what we know about dead people. Just take the analogy of spiritual death and apply it to physical death. What do we know about dead people? They don't, they don't see, they don't feel, they don't hear anything. They can't touch anything. Neither do they think or make choices, desire, think they they're lifeless. That's the, he's using that metaphorical language to describe our spiritual state towards God. So it means what God is revealing to us, that the reason he's stating it that way is because he's showing us this is not something that we would have figured out on our own. Not something we would have come across and, and chosen because we weren't choosing that. We were choosing this path away from God. As uh, N.T. Wright describes our situation. He says, we live in a world where human beings left to themselves not only choose the wrong direction, we remain cheerfully confident that it is in fact the right one. Because we can't see. We can't hear. We can't understand. That's, that's the, 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 the reason for this language of spiritual death. It's describing how we relate to God before the saving work of Christ makes a difference. Which I know it sounds very morbid. This sounds super depressing and and hard. And you might say, well, no wonder people don't want to look at this. What kind of a message is this? But hard as it is to accept, the question every single one of us needs to consider this morning, if the diagnosis is actually true, If what God's word is saying here is actually true, the the question we all need to ask ourselves is the very same question that that doctor asked the woman in that comedy sketch. God is asking you through his word, can I be very honest with you? That's what he's saying, really, in these first three verses. Can I be honest with you? And you need to really honestly ask yourself, like, can he? Can God 
be honest with me and say what's true even if I don't like hearing it? Can he tell me what's true about my relationship with him right now outside of a relationship with Christ, even if it's hard to hear? Or do what I, is what I really want a God who is just going to tell me what sounds nice and pleasant? Who's just going to tell me everything's fine and it's going to be fine so that my feelings don't get hurt, so I don't need to reorder anything in my life the way I've set it up? Is that really what we want? Or can God be very honest with us? even when it's hard to hear? Only you can answer that question for yourself. Nobody can answer it for you. But I know this. For the one who has ears to hear and can receive this diagnosis, this grave diagnosis, as a loving revelation, well, there is also the hopeful promise for change. There is the hopeful promise of resurrection offered as well by one who himself died and was raised to life again, which is what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at right here, really the the response to the grave diagnosis, the remedy that Paul offers here. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at being raised to new life in him, raised to new life in him. And the way Paul begins this stark, beautiful contrast to the grave diagnosis that he just laid down in verses 1 to 3, we see at the beginning of verse 4, which begins with one of the most incredible words in the entire Bible, but, or some of your translations more specifically will have it as, but God. It's one of the most incredible words in all the Bible, but. Now I realize that word Like, for instance, for wives, that strikes fear in many of their hearts when they hear their husbands say that word because it's usually followed by an explanation of, like, why something that they asked couldn't or did not get done the way they needed it. But when the Bible uses the word but, usually it's followed by, like, really, really good stuff. So that's the case here in our passage. As as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, he said, these two words, but God, in a sense, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole message of the gospel, telling us what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside of us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God. Just two words. This is who you were before Christ, but God. What is it that God, what has he done? What has God done to those over whom this grave diagnosis of death has been spoken? Well, as we continue to read, we see at least two things. He has made us alive with Christ, and he has raised us up or exalted us with Christ. These two things. So let's look at each one on their own and hopefully begin to see how each of these reveal the incredible riches of God's grace towards us in Jesus. The first response of God to our grave diagnosis we see in verses 4 and 5. Look with me there. Paul says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. So obviously, the very first thing, being made alive. To be made alive is the loving, gracious gift of God, which relates directly to our diagnosis of being dead. Being dead in our transgressions and sin, the very first response of God to dead people is to make them alive. He brings us to life, but as you keep reading verse 5, what you see immediately is that what makes this demonstration of God's power incomparably gracious is not just that He's raised us and made us alive, 
That's a demonstration of his power, but not necessarily a demonstration of his grace. What makes it a demonstration of his grace is, that, is, is when he makes us alive. He makes us alive even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's, that's when he makes us alive, which means, and this is why the grace of God truly is incomparably rich, God healed our, our death problem. He fixed our separation from him problem entirely of himself while we were still in the very state that was keeping us separated from him. While we were still doing all the things that were away from him and, and directed away from him, not seeing, not hearing, not looking for him, that's when he reached down and made us alive. Which, of course, if you remember what we said earlier about dead people, he would have had to have done it that way. Because there's no possible way for us to respond to him, to contribute to our salvation. Dead things being made alive, they can't choose to be made alive. They need to be made alive. Which means that ultimately any picture of salvation that we have or that we've heard before where it talks about us, you know, we're, we're drowning in sin, uh, we're, we're deathly ill and raised to life, are in a sense actually inadequate. They're kind of inadequate because who you were before Jesus, who I was before Jesus made us alive again in himself, we were, we were Lazarus in a tomb four days dead. That's who we were. Nothing, no ability to get over to the stone and move it away. Like you, We had no ability other than the call of Jesus come out. We were... We were Bones of dead people lying on a field like in Ezekiel that God spoke over and caused to come to new life, to be new human creations. That, that's the picture of salvation that Paul is giving us here, that we were lifeless, helpless, utterly dependent on his grace to save us, and he did it. Paul expands on this idea of, of when it was that God uh, rescued us, when it was that he called us to life in Romans 5, a passage you might be familiar with, which we actually read this morning, so you really should be. When Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, dead people pretty powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The point in every place, that, that's just one example. There's, there's numerous examples of this. The point in every place it's referred to is that the love of God in making us alive in Christ was not in response to us, was not in response to our reaching out to Him, to our call, to our, to our choice, to our effort or earning. It was entirely an act of His grace. And I don't know about you, I'm not going to speak for you, but when I think of the sin and rebellion that Jesus had to forgive in my own life. In order to heal that separation between myself and God, I know he had to be incredibly rich in grace to receive a rebel like me into his kingdom, to make me alive when I was running in the exact opposite direction from him. But although that in itself would be more than enough to complete a picture of God as loving and gracious, we see in verse 6, 
that Paul uh, shows us that God's grace is even more incomparable because after making us alive with Christ, Paul goes on to say that God has raised us up with Christ, exalting us to the place and position that Christ had after he died and rose again, which we looked at in more detail last week. Now hear me, this is not at all to say that, that, that we become Christ when he makes us alive. No, the, the gracious gifts that God offers us in Christ and who he is eternally as the second person of the Trinity will always and forever remain separate things. But the point that Paul is, has already gone in great lengths in chapter 1 to prove is that for all those who are in Christ, those who have moved from before Christ to in Christ, what is true of him now becomes true of us. And we can know that. We can know that he can actually offer that and actually make good on his promise because although he was dead, although he was laid in a tomb, Jesus was raised to life by God's incomparably great power and seated at the right hand of the Father, his name exalted above every other name. He has the power and authority to accomplish what it is he's promised for all those who are in him. Which is exactly the, thing, the point I think Paul's trying to make when he uses the exact same word to describe the riches of God's grace that he did to describe his power back in chapter 1, verse 19. Incomparable. It's the exact same word in the Greek. It is incomparable. I think Paul, what he's saying is, look, the incomparably great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead truly is for you and will result in your own resurrection. How can I know that? How? Not because of your earning, not because of your effort or anything that you contribute, but because along with being incomparably powerful, God is also incomparably gracious. He's both. The question you're likely asking in light of all this is, you think of this, if you're anything like me, is, okay, but, but why? Why in the world would he do that? I mean, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that, that God would make me alive even when I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I'm grateful that God would take a rebel like me and exalt me to the place where his son is who was perfectly obedient. It's incredible, but why would he do that? That seems really dumb. Well, one answer to the question, I think we see in something that Paul writes later in Ephesians, which we'll get to in a few weeks, in chapter 3, verse 20, namely that the grace of God in Jesus is so incomparably rich that he doesn't just give us what we need. He doesn't just give us what we would have asked for if only we were alive enough to know we needed it. He gives us immeasurably more than all that we could ask or even imagine to ask. That's, what the, that's the kind of father the God of the Bible is. He doesn't just give us what we ask for. He gives us more than we could even think to ask for. But if you look at the immediate context of verse 7, you see Paul actually answers the why question, why for God's resurrection and exaltation of us in Christ. He says, God did this, verse 7. Oh, I should turn there. That would be helpful. He did this in order that the come, in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. So why did God do all this? 
Why did he make us alive even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins? Why would he exalt us and seat us in the heavenly places with Christ even though we were rebels? What we read in verse 7 is the very same answer we looked at already before in the past weeks, and we're going to see again and again and again. We've been saved, we've been made alive, we've been exalted for the praise of his glorious grace. For the praise of his glorious grace, a grace so glorious, Paul tells us, it's going to take the coming ages. It's going to take all of eternity to to reveal it all to us. It's not something he can just tell you. It's going to take all eternity to just see the riches of his grace, which means if you can just imagine this scene in your mind, as the plan of God in Jesus to save you, to save me, to save every person he chose, predestined and adopted by his grace, is unfolded over eternity, our response over and over and over and over and over again is just going to be an eruption of praise, of thanksgiving, of, of glory for the incomparable riches of his grace. Think about it. As you finally get to see how all the sad hard, incomprehensible things of your life were working towards his plan and purpose to unite all things in Christ. We get to see again and again what we're going to hear as we're in God's presence is, oh, oh, that's what you were doing. Oh, I see it now. Praise you. I didn't understand that. I see it now. And our tears of grief and sadness now will then be turned into tears of joy. That's why God would do this. That's why he would make you alive and exalt you even when you were dead in your transgressions and sins so that as you look ahead to that day, we could say right now, today with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, that our present sufferings are only achieving achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As we close this morning, the only question on my mind and which is of most importance for me and I pray for you as well is simply this. Do you have this new life? Do you have it? Are are you living and and walking in it? Now, listen and understand, I'm I'm not asking are you walking perfectly in it. I know you're not and neither am I. And that's not the expectation We only have one whoever was perfectly obedient to God, and that was Jesus. Our call is to walk in the grace and the power that he gives us to do all we can to be obedient to him, trusting in his grace to forgive us when we don't. So I'm not asking, are you perfectly walking in it? But neither am I asking you whether or not you are trying to have new life. I'm not asking you if you're trying to have it. As Keller rightly states, being a Christian or not being a Christian is not a matter of degree. It's a matter of essence and quality. You're either a Christian because you have new spiritual life or you're not because you don't. Christianity is not a matter of degree or gradations. And in light of that, one of the things that you might have noticed grammatically as you read through these uh, verses, verses 1 through 7, is the way Paul consistently speaks of both our spiritual deadness as well as our new life in Christ, along with our exaltation, all these things. He speaks of them in the past tense. You, you were dead, you see, he says. The things you used to walk in, you have been made alive. 
You have been exalted. He speaks them as certain, already completed realities. He doesn't say you're on your way to life. They're already happened. And so my question, really, that we need to consider this morning is, has, have you acknowledged the reality of the grave diagnosis? Hard as it is to hear and accept, because when you understand and believe just how desperate our need was for the grace of God in saving us here at BC, it's there that you begin to realize just how incomparably rich His grace was in giving it for those who are in Christ. And that changes everything, right? When you see it, when you really see it, it changes everything. For out of the riches of His grace, you have now been made alive. You've been exalted. You've been given this exalted, raised up status with with Christ now. You have it now and you will receive it. You will experience it one day. But you have it right now. Which is beyond, he says, any of our abilities to earn or, or, or be worthy of, even if we lived a thousand lifetimes. Which really, it means we should begin now offering Him the praise which we're going to do for all eternity for His grace to us. We should be starting now. But my plea to you is this. If you are in any way here this morning and you're unsure, if you would say, I I don't know. I don't know if I have it. I want it. I'm I'm trying to to have it. I'm, I'm coming to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm trying to do the things. I'm trying to have the new life, but I don't know if I have it. If, if that's where you're at this morning, don't, don't leave this place today without asking the question. Talk to me after the word. Talk to somebody who you know and trust and, and explore the question. But don't leave it at, I'm, I hope so. I'm, I'm trying. It's not a matter of degree. You have new life or you don't. But all this I can say the hope of this passage, if we're willing to accept that grave diagnosis and our great need for grace, is that although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, the life you used to live, the thing you used to rely on, what we used to think was life, in Christ, you can know and have that you have new life. You can know you have it now as well as for all eternity to come. We can know that we have that new life Because there's been a change. The orientation of your heart has now changed towards him. That's the experience of the new life. Not that I'm now suddenly perfect, but that the desires of my heart are now set towards him. And although these other influences are coming against me, this new life now directs me towards him. That's how I know I have the new life and how one day I will experience it for all eternity. And if you, if you were here this morning and you would say, I do know, I know that he's given me that new life, then if that's where you're at, then boast in it every chance you get. Not as something you did, not as some, I, I figured out how awesome God was and I chose him, but as something he did, bef- he did for you in Christ. When you, had, when you were dead in your sins, he raised you up, he made you alive, he exalted you. Boast in that every chance you get, just as Paul did, so that by his immeasurable grace, even more might be able to hear and face the grave diagnosis, but also find its everlasting remedy in Christ. Amen.